Hello, everyone, and welcome to CPPR's podcast series, Policy Beyond Politics. I am Purvaja Modak, Research Fellow for International Relations, Geoeconomics at CPPR. In these podcasts, we will be discussing new and crucial developments in the field of international relations, law, geoeconomics, and global governance, and we'll hear interesting insights from our in-house and external research scholars. Today, I have with me Mr. Murlidharan Nair. Mr. Murlidharan Nair has held various positions in the government of India. His postings abroad include those in the Indian diplomatic missions in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, and Guangzhou. He is currently a senior fellow with CPPR. Welcome to this podcast, Murli sir. Good afternoon, Ms. Modak. So, uh, sir, while we were planning this podcast, you had mentioned two recent developments, one in China and one in India, that prompted you to propose this topic, the role of the private sector in the Chinese economy for today's discussion. Can you please briefly explain those two developments for our listeners? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Modak and uh, Mr. Sriya. Uh, Aravind for having me on today's uh, CPPR podcast. Yes, I had uh, two things in my mind, two developments, one in China and one in India. Uh, Obviously, the development in China is Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, uh, celebrating its 100 years of establishment with unprecedented pomp and gaiety. The second development unfolded 5,000 kilometers away from Beijing in Kerala, actually. Uh, I'm referring to the developments related to Kitex Garments Limited, a large uh, garments manufacturer in Kerala. Uh, Am I going to compare China with Kerala? Obviously, no. But both China and Kerala are uh, governed by two uh, communist parties or communist party-led governments. Uh, and the conditions you know, under which uh, the private sector in China and Kerala function uh, is, is a matter we need to look into. But uh, I'm not going into the rights and wrongs of what happened in Kitex company, definitely no. That has been widely discussed in the media or elsewhere over the past uh, several weeks. But my point here is, would a Chinese government at any level, at a provincial level, county level, township, municipality, city, would a Chinese Communist Party government in China have stopped uh, this particular investor from you know, opting out of a 3,500 crore investment MOU? It's a huge amount anywhere in the world and uh, diverting part of it to a nearby state which he feels is uh, the investor feels is uh, investor friendly so this is one thing we have to ponder over maybe uh, on a different occasion but in my opinion any chinese government at any level would have not have allowed uh, this gentleman from migrating away from his uh, home state their home state because it would have enriched the home state or or the local government, or local people, uh, by way of giving tens of thousands of employment to them. And um, are these uh, corporates, all the corporates, enemies of the people? It's a matter we need to revisit at a suitable time. Yeah. 
thank you murli sir uh, this is a very interesting topic and i'm very excited to do this podcast with you so moving to the next question uh, what according to you is the single biggest achievement of the chinese communist party as it celebrates uh, 100 years of its founding yeah miss mohit when we look at uh, chinese communist party's 100 years obviously uh, the communist party was successful in eliminating a feudal system which was thriving in china it eliminated uh, foreign influences that was that were impacting china in for a for a long period the chinese say 100 years of humiliation uh, but after that if you if you ask me this is elimination of abject poverty in china that is probably the biggest achievement of the communist party particularly after it established the people's republic in 1949 now how many people were brought out of abject poverty is are only little controversial subjects but anyway the general consensus among analysts is that maybe 880 million people were brought out of abject poverty um maybe the chinese had tinkered with the with a figure for fixing uh, poverty you know the w world bank uh, figure is 1.9 dollars per per day as the income and in the case of um, chinese government they had fixed it at 2.30 dollars but china is a middle income country so the world expects it to fix this uh, number at 5.5 dollars per day but anyhow they were successful in bringing out uh, millions of people out of poverty uh, according to even chinese scholars and uh, authorities including li keqiang their premier that's the chinese prime minister he ha- he had said last year that about around 100 a uh, million people are still uh, living in poverty may not be in abject poverty but definitely poverty w uh, world bank uh, sometimes said that it's 13% people are still under poverty uh, others say it's around 7 to 8% of people are still in poverty anyway abject poverty has been eliminated to a large extent that is for certain um then urban poverty urban poverty is one thing that exists in china like in any other part of the world that also has been probably overlooked that's one thing uh, people say but if you ask me china which was very poor very weak uh, maybe some 70 years ago has become the number one economy by ppp that's a purchasing power parity standards if you look at the nominal term gdp uh, then definitely china will become the largest economy uh, by uh, uh, surpassing the united states in the current decade ending on the ending in 2030 so the the, the china has overcome the financial crisis several times economic slowdowns particularly the one in 2008 and 9 and their ability to to deliver on promises including to the people of the country these are all major achievements of the of the communist party uh, so uh, murli sir before we uh, move on to the role of the private sector in china's economy can you uh, very briefly tell us about the economic situation the country was in before its economy started picking up as you just mentioned 
Yeah, that makes sense actually. Um, you know, after the People's Republic was uh, established, uh, Mao Zedong started tinkering with the established systems of governing uh, a, a nation, particularly in the economic field. Um, he was the supreme leader. He was the chairman. Um, he started establishing uh, collectives, uh, took away farmland from people, made them into collectives, established communes. Communes had brigades under them, brigades had teams under them. Everybody, everyone worked for the government or the party. They contributed their might. And, uh, you know, according to the Chinese uh, the parlance, to, to from each according to his merit and to each according to his requirement, sort of thing, equal wages for equal work. So it, in fact, killed uh, the 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 uh, that sense of um, um, enterprise among the people into individuality was lost so uh, then of course they realized it uh, sooner than later then mao also uh, launched something called a great leap forward i'm sure the experts all know it and my aim is to uh, address the students community in kerala and uh, across other states in india if you are able to reach them. Uh, so the, by that time, China's relations with the, you know, the USSR, Soviet Union had uh, uh, soured and uh, a little help was coming. So he, he wanted to build an industrial base for the country and steel is the most important uh, thing for any development anywhere in the world. So he told people, you know, instead of, uh, because they had little money, they produced little agricultural products which they could sell in the international market and use that money for importing uh, industrial equipment. So then he told his people, you will start something called back, backyard furnaces. You know, every village, you know, they had three, four, or maybe every household had a furnace where they will uh, go look for uh, scrap metal lying anywhere, throw it into the furnace, look for wood to fire the furnace. And in the process, they ignored uh, uh, agriculture work. They needed wood. They had to go cut the wood, search for it. Finally, the pressure was there from the local party secretary to produce more. So they, they, in most of the cases, they started throwing in their uh, kitchen utensils, farm implements into the furnace. It led to a big famine in China. And um, according to different estimates, between 25 million to 50 million, and even some people say 80 million people perished. But the, a conservative estimate is that about uh, uh, 35 million people died of famine. That's almost the size of uh, population in Kerala. Then uh, he, in between, he launched uh, uh, something called a cultural revolution, the great uh, proletarian cultural revolution. The aim was to purge the rightists from the Communist Party of China, but Mao really intended to purge his um, distractors or opponents from the party. The, all, everything stopped in China. The youngsters boycotted universities, came out, they quartered of their, their professors, uh, rich, the so-called rich people of the uh, old times, bureaucrats, everybody was, uh, you know, tried and punished by these red guards. So nothing happened in China. 
So China became even poorer than it was in 1949, if you ask me. Uh, but Mao lost control gradually. Uh, by He dies in 1976. Then uh, old people like Teng Xiaoping uh, came back. They were all reinstated. So new levels of uh, individual uh, or local autonomy was uh, granted. Uh, private cultivation started. People could sell for uh, profit what they produced. So definitely things started changing after the uh, death of Mao in 1976, uh, which we, we may uh, see in, in, uh, in the next question probably. So Murti, sir, uh, after these initial decades of political turmoil and economic instability, how has China reached where it is today? And I believe it took three, four decades after that to bring the country to where it is. So uh, would you like to tell us something about that? Uh, sure. That's very important, actually. Uh, if you ask me one word, that, that probably the key word is pragmatism. The pragmatism of the Chinese leadership. Um, they know that they have to they are the, the Communist Manifesto or Mao's thoughts and all those books are their Bible. But definitely they are very pragmatic uh, to, to see that um, they have to adopt and adapt things from outside world, even if from the capitalist world, to ensure that the people's lives are uh, see some, uh, some, some improvement. Uh, they have the desire to uh, do good things for the people, no doubt. Uh, and they have the capability to deliver on most of the promises. So, uh, cutting uh, short, you know, I can say that by 1978, uh, December or early 79, uh, Deng Xiaoping, he had become the paramount leader of the country. He never held the topmost position in the country. So he launched uh, reforms and opening up policy um, with a lot of fanfare. So China, China was a highly regulated, restrictive economy by that time. So he unleashed the spirit of enterprise by opening up and uh, uh, reforming the economic sector. The central uh, controls were loosened. Uh, state ownership uh, was um, you know, weakened purposefully. And uh, they moved to some sort of a private ownership where it was required. They, the, they had a highly stagnated state-owned enterprises sector, that is the public sector. They restructured them, uh, closed down several of them, you know, hundreds of them, uh, uh, restructured them, um, merged them with other companies, sold them out. They had something which I call personally uh, an ice cream shampoo, towel culture, because the worker was pampered. He was not accountable for what he produced. That was dismantled. And, uh, you know, China had little money. So Deng Xiaoping personally assured overseas Chinese. If you look at China's uh, uh, growth, the first wave of invest investment from abroad came from overseas Chinese. Overseas Chinese are equivalent of our non-resident Indians who had migrated out of China primarily because of the atrocities they committed on uh, uh, the comparatively richer sections of the population uh, when the part uh, com the communist China was not yet established. 
and he established thing shopping so to it that they established some special economic zones there has no money so he told some of the provinces which could spare some money to go and invest there build the infrastructure for special economic zone then people started coming the, there was a little doubt then there is a famous saying that some leader told him at a meeting that you smell them the money the overseas chinese will come because they they are good at making money and jiang zemin was uh, uh, the party general secretary and president of the country at that time then he was a little doubtful how to open up a country from a conservative communist society to a capitalist uh, um, adopt a capitalist road uh, in practice but then deng xiaoping made a series of speeches and deng deng xiaoping's uh, daughter deng nan Uh, in an interview in 2014 said that her father's speeches at various levels of uh, after 1978 save uh, op- reforms and opening up because conservatives were opposing it um one of the famous speech is titled the uh, color of the cat by the outside world chinese don't say that say that he said that the color of the cat doesn't matter so long as it catches the mouse that is whether it is capitalism or socialism or whatever it has to improve the quality of lives of the people on another occasion then the leadership the second generation leader leadership was still doubtful so then he said to get rich is glorious so he eliminated lot of uh, doubts among the uh, doubting thomases in the second generation and weakened uh, conservatives and uh, then investments had come to the coastal region in south and east because the people who had migrated mostly at that time from china during the, uh, the their uh, liberation struggle were from these regions so they had come back and they felt comfortable in working in these regions so the people there became rich started becoming rich and people in other parts of interior china remained poor so deng xiaoping said uh, uh, let some people get rich first which meant that others can re- get rich later so of course then an all out uh, campaign was uh, unleashed for manufacturing uh, the, the model they adopted they had to adopt was investment manufacture and export manufactured low end products they had no technology at that time uh, and this uh, ensured that lot of people uh, got employment from other areas they migrated to these areas i china experienced double digit uh, uh, gdp growth for several years back to back and uh, the decision making was uh, decentralized the local party secretary could do anything he wants so far as it is in the, in the interest of uh, uh, developing uh, that that local localities economy so this all helped china to 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 make a quantum jump uh, in on uh, in their uh, economy um, so murli sir moving to the private sector now uh, how big and how influential is the private sector in china today uh this is a very very good question in fact uh, in my, uh, in one sentence i would say china, the private sector in china is the main driver of chinese economy today about uh, 60% of the gdp china's gdp is contributed by the private sector 80% of the urban employment 
is uh, given by the, the by the private sector. Ninety percent of new jobs in China are created in the in the private sector. Seventy percent of the investments in China happen in in the private sector. Ninety percent of exports in China uh, 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 happen from the from the private sector. And the Chinese keep say uh, talking about innovation because I told they were uh, they had adopted a, a sort of ma manufacturing low end products, exporting it and all. They know that this is not a sustainable model, so they are migrating or transitioning into into um, a high end manufacturing uh, country. Uh, using innovation, automation, etc. Their their aim is to become the new Germany uh, in Asia, and seventy percent of the innovation is also happening in the private sector. And China has around uh, ninety million uh, small and medium sector enterprises, and uh, there are so many other businesses run by one person alone or one person with the assistance of a part time help. Uh, these are all apart from the 90 million I have I had mentioned. So uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, people are willing to do anything to make money. Uh, they may copy the technology, but they will add something to it. They do a value addition to what they what they uh, copy from outside world. We don't have time to go uh, in, in in detail into this. Um, then the productivity of the Chinese worker is definitely everybody accepts that this is better than uh, in many parts of the world. Probably, you know, a large chunk of their um, take-home salary uh, is uh, is the overtime uh, money that is uh, it's all linked to productivity. So they all work hard, and um, uh, the, the entire system, including the judiciary, the local police, everybody helps. Uh, yeah, the private sector uh, to 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 uh, contribute more and more to the to the, to the nation's economy. Oh, so, Murli sir, the numbers you mentioned are uh, enough to uh, you know indicate how big and how influential the private sector is in China today. And with this exponential growth of the private sector, uh, what has happened to the state-owned enterprises or the public sector undertakings in the country? Yeah, very true. That's uh, that's a very valid question uh, because um, uh, the, the, the state-owned enterprises, that's a, a public sector undertakings, were ruling the roost. You know, from a cigarettes uh, selling shop to the steel plant, huge steel uh, cong conglomerates, everybody, everything was run by the state sector. But they, I as I mentioned earlier, they shut down a lot of. Uh, unprofitable, uh, hopeless, and uh, state-owned enterprises, factories. They merged some of them. They sold some of them. They had uh, tie-ups, joint ventures with uh, private investors from abroad. So, and uh, they, they, uh, in fact, um, so many people were retrenched uh, uh, during this period from these uh, public sector uh, factories and other companies. Uh, some of them were retrained. They were absorbed in other sectors. As I told, the, the, the state-owned enterprises dismantled their ice cream, um, shampoo culture, which I mentioned earlier. 
Uh, now it has come to a stage that every youngster in China wants to get an employment uh, in the in the state-owned enterprise, if not in the government. That, that sort of uh, they, are, they pay very well. Though the workers in other sectors, that is the private sector, are not looked after very well uh, by their employers, the state-owned enterprise employees are looked after very well. Now these people, you know, the state-owned enterprise, they don't go into making small, small things, uh, which uh, the private sector, uh, uh, small-scale uh, industries make. They are now looking at bigger things like telecom, steel, pharma, aerospace, um, in including, you know, the uh, fintech, uh, semiconductor manufacturing, etc. And for this state-owned enterprises, they uh, you know they get uh, you know some special uh, privileges in the in the in the market uh, for a, for an investor investor from abroad or a private investor. There is no level playing ground when it comes to the interests of the um, in the state-owned enterprises. Definitely no. And there, there is some families, political families, including big ministers, commun communist party leaders. They, these state-owned enterprises have patronage of these big families. Um, uh, there are so many names which I would not like to take uh, during this uh, session. Uh, so the state protects, not only protects, it nourishes the state-owned enterprises. Uh, I think a, a conservative estimate, there are so many estimates, uh, but conservative estimates accepted by the world is that about 30% of the GDP is, uh, is contributed by the, by the state-owned enterprises. Uh, in the Fortune 500 list, uh, which I saw last, I can't recollect the, the, the year of uh of the of the of this list but uh, out of the 109 uh, co big corporates that figured in the fortune 500 list uh, from china eight uh, about 90 plus were from the state owned enterprises so the private sector uh, uh, there were hardly i think uh, uh, 15 20 of them from the private sector otherwise all the big companies are run by the state-owned enterprises so um, and they all get uh, all sorts of uh, help from banks banks are not keen are in fact very keen to give uh, loans to these people because the government uh, uh, helps them uh, government uh, even uh, supports uh, bank loans given to the state-owned enterprises though they they will continue to be a major factor in china's uh, economy for in the coming years well, uh, Murli Sath, uh, this was a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, series of questions that I had for you and your answers were really, uh, you know, there's so much that I've learned from uh, you today. So uh, with this, I'd like to uh, thank you for sharing your views with CPPR. Uh, we look forward to hosting you again soon for yet another engaging discussion on your areas of research and expertise. Uh, thank you to all our listeners for joining us. You can listen to all our podcasts on our social media accounts. Just type hashtag policy beyond politics podcast. For more research and content from CPPR, do log into our website www.cppr.in. Follow our work on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to our updates on Telegram. 
Thank you. And we will be back again soon with many more interesting discussions with eminent scholars. Goodbye.